you the users can be trained, right? And, and that's not entirely true. User education, awareness, training serves a purpose. But at the end of the day, you do need technical controls to kind of help save uh, save the, uh, the the organization from themselves. You're listening to KBcast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. John, welcome to the show. I'm really happy to have you here today because I've already spoken to you and you've got a lot of energy, which I really love when I get guests on the show. So I'm really looking forward to that. And a topic that I haven't really spoken about before on the podcast, which is insider threats. So we're going to get into the details around the psychology, why people do what they do, which I find incredibly interesting. But before we do that, we always like to start our show off with talking about you and your journey. So please, John, talk our listeners through where you sort of started your journey into security and what are you sort of doing now? Okay, perfect. Thank you. Um, So I want to first uh, say hello to all your listeners there. Uh, My name is John Brandt. My role at ISACA is Information Security Professional Practices Lead. And, And that's a whole lot of words just to mean that I'm an internal SME um, to our membership and um, my my colleagues, right, on anything InfoSec. I'm a 20-year uh, U.S. Navy veteran, and that's kind of how I got started in this whole um, security space, albeit long before cybersecurity was really a thing. Um, started off on basically, uh, you know, classified uh, radio communications that transitioned to the digital age, uh, about midway through my career, we uh, transitioned from the IT space to the security space. Um, and that just kind of uh, set my journey uh, up in a lot of different regards since then. Um, I retired from the Navy in 2012, um, did a uh, project manager job uh, for um, critical infrastructure across the globe for a year. And then uh, then this opportunity at ISACA presented itself, and I've been here seven years now. Wow. You know, it's interesting. I've actually had a fair few people on the show that are ex-military, ex-Navy or, you know, Army. And I always like to ask the question, what was your experience like transitioning in terms of your knowledge uh, from the military into more of the private sector, would you say that there's still a lot of learning to be done in your experience? Um, I think, I think that's a fair assessment. I, you know, personally, my, my journey was, was rough, uh, more personally than professionally. And I think that there's, um, when you go from a national security type mindset, you know, regardless of what, what government or, or country you live in, um, you have to think broader. You need to think bigger, and oftentimes that's where some of my um, my you know my f- former um, brothers and sisters in arms where they struggle. So um, from a knowledge and experience, I I think a lot of things. Um, we military is a very good feeder into cybersecurity across the globe, uh, regardless of whether you're just a U.S. Or, or you go to work for a global company. And there's a lot of value there um, with this particular topic today. Right. Um, for those of us who served in the intelligence community and had, you know, security clearances and whatnot, um, all of this stuff is kind of second nature. Right. When you think about insider threats and, and you know, threat mitigation and whatnot. 
that leads me to my next question because I was just going to say, would you, do you believe from your experience working, you know, in what you were doing before, national security has really helped sort of shaped your thinking around insider threats? Because you've probably seen a lot more stuff in how people are than perhaps someone who's just solely, wholly and solely like, I don't know, worked in the banking and finance space, so to speak. I would say absolutely. Uh, I, I think uh, for me, right, I'm uh, for, been forever the skeptic um and you always um it, the unfortunate thing is when you're when you're talking about pr- or protecting you know any country's you know uh national security information or whatnot um there's a lot of safeguards in place and you, you learn to kind of question more than your corporate counterparts uh, and it really kind of boiled down to a philosophy right um in the military you know in, in this kind of it, it, the mindset which transitioned into how they did it corporate america has largely been uh, wide open, right, and and then with a with kind of like a um a blacklist model, whereas within the government space we operated, you know, conversely, where it was you only allowed the things that were absolutely necessary to do your job. Yeah, wow. So that's interesting because I totally agree with you and your thoughts. I'm actually reading a book at the moment, and it's called uh, The Key Man, and I'm doing an interview. Uh, with a guy who works for a large consulting firm in Boston about they were they were referenced in the book and all this stuff. But the start of it, it just talks about this guy and how charismatic he was and everyone liked him and he got all this money off all these billionaires. And it just sort of set him up to sort of do what he ended up doing in the end. And it's interesting because I'm the same as you. Obviously, I'm in security myself, so I've always, I'm very skeptical of people and I'm always questioning their, their motivations, which I really want to get into today. So talk to me, John, like, you know, security, it's overwhelming. People got enough on their plate. They feel exhausted. They feel burnt out. You know, they've, they've got executives on their back because something's going wrong. And then on top of that, they have to then worry about their internal team, their insider threats. So that really does add an additional layer of complexity to security. So talk to me about your thoughts around this, because this sort of popped up a few years ago in terms of it being quite ubiquitously spoken in the market. And then I haven't heard of it much being spoken about lately because other things have popped up probably because of COVID and a few other things but I'm keen to sort of explore like your thoughts what you sort of seen in your time so I think that this is kind of a good tie-in just you know if we pause for a second and consider why all of a sudden um, so, you know, a philosophy such as zero trust is gaining momentum, right? And it's it's not that it's earth shattering by any stretch of the imagination. It's kind of a a pivot, a refocus of sorts into the you know trust but verify type mindset. The I, I think oftentimes, um, and 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 with within my circle, I know there's a lot of agreement here. Uh, first first and foremost. Security is not easy, uh, and I think that that needs to always remain first and foremost. There's nothing about what we do is is easy, especially when you start talking about human behavior and whatnot. Um, th- the other aspect of this is that oftentimes, and and again, this is w- one one uh, guy's perspective here is. I think largely our industry has done themselves a disservice and kind of kind of reinventing the wheel in some regards. And, and, and by that, I say physical loss prevention is nothing new. 
and, and has long existed in just about every vertical that we find ourselves in as technology professionals. Um, so everything from retail to, you know, to um, banking or whatnot, that craft, if you will, under the f- physical security realm is pretty mature and and it's nothing new. And I think that there's a lot of lessons to be gained there and why I think that true, the most successful organizations out there are the ones that are, are kind of um, trying to approach this both from a technological as well as a, as a human um, aspect. So that's interesting. You speak around a disservice now, just can you elaborate a little bit more? Like you said, you sort of did touch on something there, but do you think that people are sort of just creating products for the sake of creating products? Because obviously security is not easy. It's a big problem. It's not one size fits all. It's not a silver bullet to solve all of the problems that we have. So do you think people are sort of just trying to come up with stuff, um, but then it, it doesn't do like doesn't do anything in the long run? Or like what is that what you mean by that comment? Well, I think so. I think that there is a part of that, but let me clarify real quick. I think that first and foremost, there was a lot of lessons to be learned from for anybody that works in the physical security space, and I think that again, it's this speaks to the fact of uh, of working with the business units. Um, not only every, you know, the business units across the, any organization, but more importantly, um, the, whatever the risk function is for your particular company or uh, industry and physical loss prevention is a, is a key component of it. Uh, however, al- alongside of that, I do believe that there is a there are a lot of products that are being that have historically been pitched to companies um, that have under-delivered is probably the most um, politically correct way of saying it. And, and oftentimes when we, when we look at the cost to implement a security solution, up until recently, the things that I had heard from a lot of folks was, well, once my company made an investment, they were they were very hesitant to walk away from that solution. And I think that that speaks more uh, keenly to the fact of sometimes these um, security solutions may have been purchased without really defining what it is you were trying to do or um, not understanding the product enough and kind of just, you know, going with a reputable vendor just because you know somebody you you had worked with in the past had something and it worked but it it just your particular environment where you are today it was not really the best solution if that makes sense yeah got you okay i guess people are creatures of habit people fall back on people they know or companies they know um but it's it's the industry is ephemeral, like things change all the time. So what, what what may have worked for your company two years ago may not work today. So I think I think that's where people do get burnt out because it's continuous, right? It's not like, oh, you know, I bought the thing now and I don't have to, I can sit back and put my feet up. That's not really how it works. So I can totally understand your point of view. So let's let's dive into the motivation and behavior behind the different types of insider threats. Now, people are going to argue there's different buckets. I only really care about your opinion and your thoughts on the matter. And like you said earlier, like this is human behavior. And I think this is something that 
is really hard to understand because each human has their own thoughts. It's not software. We can configure it. We can control it. We understand what type of outcome we're going to get. Humans are not necessarily, they don't always make sense in how they operate. So I think that this ultimately does add that additional layer of complexity because we are dealing with people that have feelings and emotions and they do things that don't make sense, right? So I'm really keen to get into this. So, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, if you go read four different articles on insider threats, you're going to get four different uh, articles or opinions on how how to categorize them. Um, Most recently, ISACA released a white paper. um, And in that, um, you know, we basically broadly look at two two broad categories categories, one being malicious, and that kind of speaks to itself and those motivations we'll, we'll, we'll touch on momentarily are pretty straightforward and almost textbook in some regards. Um, the other one being malignant. And, and I think for our for the, your audience, I think it's worthwhile just for me to read how we define malignant threat. And, and that is those threats that are unintentional, There's no motive, good or bad, for causing the losses associated with these malignant threats. And when we look at that, right, that is, it could, it kind of captures the accidental, the negligent. Um, It could be the um, possibly opportunistic, although that kind of straddles the line there. this is the one largely, if if you ask me, right, this is the one that companies do not give enough credit towards. And we, there's not enough emphasis. And when you look at why a philosophy like zero trust has gained such widespread adoption in favor of late, it's because it's forcing enterprises done right to basically go back to basics and and look at two main components, and that's need to know and and least privilege. And the undoubtedly, the longer anybody has been in a company, they most likely had changed positions, um, and they just kind of uh, collate permissions and accesses, and and oftentimes there's no uh, there's no validation, like you know. Every year, just to kind of go back to business units, hey, listen, double check, you know, who all has access to your data. Because if that was done, you're, lar- you're largely mitigating a, a large risk there. Um, most um, people that I've heard speaking about insider threats as well, you know, th- there's this this belief that... Um, you, the users can be trained, right? And, and that's not entirely true. User education, awareness, training serves a purpose. But at the end of the day, you do need technical controls that kind of help save uh, save the, the, the organization from themselves. Um, so if we go back to basics and we question what every permission is that somebody has, what kinds of data they have access to, you're you're basically minimizing your risk exposure at the lowest levels. Do you think when executives think of insider threats or when someone raises that point, 
their mind automatically goes like it's bad, like all these people, are they're bad. And do you think that's sort of the first thing that comes up in their mind, which isn't necessarily the case? Um, you know, we can't paint everyone with the same brush. Ultimately, yes, there are people who are doing the wrong thing and their intention is bad. But do you think that because of that, it's almost engendered this scarcity into people and then it gives them like more anxiety thinking that everyone in their team is bad? Well, I so I, so this is a great question, and and I think it speaks to the fact of you have to communicate what it is, why we're concerned, and I think this is this is where security pro- professionals and executive leadership, where I believe that a little bit more work can be done, is is uh, you know when we do security awareness training, I don't think the why we care or why it matters is always adequately conveyed to the uh, to the average employee because it's not that you don't trust your employees necessarily right but because there's you know it's almost this belief is if you if you are actively trying to monitor and mitigate the insider threat that you somehow don't trust your your employees. And I don't think that's a fair assessment. I, I think that there's a component of that to like what you said, but there's things that, you know, that are not new shadow IT, right. Is, is a good example of this is that when employees are looking for efficiencies, they need to have a way to, to approach the company and and look for you know hey listen i'm looking at this particular software or i'm looking at this way of doing things and what we've since learned over the last i don't know decade or so is that just saying no really is going to force your employees to go get creative in how they go about doing their business um so so there is that that piece of it right where you're just like it could come across absolutely wrong, like that we don't trust you or, or whatnot. But I think it's it is that education piece, and I don't and I don't want to say awareness training because I think that that we've largely done a disservice. And I have you know different thoughts on on the awareness versus education piece of it. But it's getting all of your employees to kind of see things through a technical risk lens, or even just a more broadly a risk lens because cybersecurity is a technical risk. Yeah, gotcha. So how it's sort of coming to my mind is, yes, of course, you need to ensure that how you, the language that you use to communicate to staff, like, no, you can't use Dropbox. And then that's the end of it. Like you have to understand from their point of view, they don't like following arduous, laborious processes. So they kind of don't get it. And then of course they go off and use Dropbox or whatever it is. Uh, Cause I know this first, First hand, that was my experience. Uh, and then the other thing is, like you said, implementing technical controls. It's kind of like when you play, um, um, bolt, when you're doing bowling, right? Like you've got the bumper bars on to sort of guide you down properly, right? And then that that's what the controls are there to do, to sort of guide you in the right direction. And it's not, of course, going to mean it's going to solve all your problems, but it's going to help you get to that end goal. So when so let's let's actually then flip that on its head and let's talk about the malicious side of it. So let's get into the mindset of someone who knows they are doing the wrong thing because that does happen. We've seen it. It's in the news. It's in this book that I'm reading. So I'd like to sort of understand 
how do you how do you think about that? What like what comes up in your mind when when you speak about someone who is doing things maliciously and for ill intent? So I think that you something you might actually come across in that book if you haven't already is when if you if you go back to the intelligence world and this was something we we wrote about in this paper um this acronym mice right money ideology coercion and ego and, and largely all your malicious um events are going to can be somehow tied to one of those four areas now there's this concept that was that was you know we we spoke to and it's out there where they talk about this it's called the significant emotional event and it's something that came out of Carnegie Mellon University and you know oftentimes there's this there's a trigger and and, and I think this is where enterprises and I know like from my former world, you know, with a security clearance and having to go through polygraphs, like, you know, the thought is, is like the, you know, polygraphers are going to find the, the next major spy. And, and the reality is, is it, if you have access to the data or whatnot the, on the reporting on it, that often doesn't come about because those are, they're periodic and a polygraph, right? is kind of like your, your periodic risk assessment. So what's happening though, on the other 364 and a half days a year, and that's where these things come into play. So if we look at like significant events, and, and this is why, um, there's some support to do, um, financial disclosures and different kinds of monitoring of your, especially um, your privileged users with the company. But I, I think anymore, I'm not convinced that that's really appropriate anymore. And I, every country, this is really a, it's a regional consideration as well as a corporate and industry thing, because there is no one size fits all. Um if you work in a, you know, in a large global bank, uh, you know, obviously your risk, uh, could be a little higher than it would be if you were a, you know, small to medium business that's just doing like homemade goods or something to that extent. Um, but looking at those triggers and, you know, money historically, if you read the, you know, the, the novels that are out there and, you know, in these grand visions of, you know, being, um, the cloak and dagger type thing. And there's a story, right. That broke here in the United States about this uh, couple, right. Of that allegedly um, have allegedly um, released some nuclear submarine information. I believe it is. Um, those just aren't prominent. Like they, they obviously get the, they get the headlines. It becomes a big story and, and people will rally behind it. But that's an, these are largely isolated type incidents where I think they're useful though, even to corporate America is, um, when you don't, when you don't properly address them. And by that, I mean like the penalty does not really deter somebody from doing the bad thing. I think that it has, a it has a likelihood of increasing the frequency and, and we see, we see this kind of happening with ransomware, right? Where, uh, you know, most law enforcement and governments are going to tell you don't pay a ransom. It's bad. Um, 
business owners typically do, right? Because they understand, you know, that how much money they're losing per minute that they're offline. But when you do pay the ransom, not only does it kind of embolden that person, but it almost makes you a target for it to happen again because they you telegraphed what you were going to do. Yeah, that's so true. And uh, just to go back a second, you're right when it comes to ego and all of that type of stuff. Yes, absolutely. Um, this guy completely had all of that. Uh, so totally agree with that point. Would you say it's probably going to be a hard question to answer? So it, you don't have to like, there's no right or wrong, but uh, so would you say most insider threats are usually senior because they're like, I'm senior, I've got the control, I've got the trust, or looking at it from the other side, are they junior? It's like, no one cares about me. No one even notices that, that I exist. I've been here for 10 years. No one knows my name. How, what do you, what do you sort of think? Like, I mean, it's just a hypothesis. Like there's no sort of guarantee, but like, you know, you can look at it from both angles, how potentially someone could get their way with their position, looking at it from two different ends of the spectrum. I, I think, you know, I'll take the cop out and say it, it depends. I think that based on some of the, the, you know, the articles I've read and whatnot, I think that the likelihood is somebody, you know, kind of in the shadows, um, left largely autonomous for whatever reason, um, are the ones because, you know, I think the concerning thing for me is that you, you just can't go on autopilot. And, and that's what seems to happen more times than not is we're all busy in this life, right? And whether it's at work, at home or whatnot, and it's easy to kind of let your guard down. And that seems to be the, the, the common theme there is it's not necessarily whether somebody's senior or junior, it's just kind of, do they have access? And then is there an opportunity? And, um, and the opportunity is something that could be largely dissuaded from some kind of formal insider threat monitoring program that would largely pair up pretty well with some kind of technical solution. Um, you know, things like when we look at uh, data protection, right? So DLP is just one component of it, but that's very small. Before COVID and all of this remote work, how many employees were coming in and out of their office space with with handbags and, you know, or purses and they've got their, their phones and their charging cords? And, you know, when I was on active duty, you know, obviously, uh, USB ports were disabled for obvious reasons, especially in classified spaces. Uh, in the corporate world, right, that's just often, these are things that are just typically not considered. Now, here we are late into the into the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're kind of moving out, and there's, you know, a lot of arguments, right, about whether, you know, people are going to largely go back into the office or not. But you have to, deterrence are a good thing, right? And it's, um, I was listening to a friend of mine's podcast earlier this week, and he talked about, you know, he lives in, in, a, in a rural area, and, his, and he was talking about a neighbor that had an ADT security sign. You know, in, in rural parts, you largely don't have any kind of, uh, you don't have, um, a, a lot of landlines are just not prevalent, and, you know, so 
you're like, you live in the rural area, you probably don't have that security system. But for for somebody that's looking for low-hanging fruit as a quick target, they're going to look for something that doesn't have the signs that there's any kind of protection. So in that particular case, right, the ADT side could be a deterrent. Well, the same thing is it holds true with what types of things do you put out there about employee policies? Um, what are the, you know, on your internet or communications, how active are you out there in your space regarding, you know, security education to your company? Because those things largely go a, a, a long ways and, but they need to be more robust than just saying to your employees that phishing is bad and this is what it needs to look for. Yeah, so true. I totally agree with you on those points. It's definitely a hard question to answer. One of the things that I'm thinking though as well, I mean, since your time in doing this, would you say more often than not people do get away with doing things that are wrong that we just never find out about? And like what percentage would you say i know that's again it's a hard question to answer but i'm just trying to gauge like people that are doing wrong things may not get caught or ever get caught and so yeah the occasional person does but would you say that that outweighs it or what are your thoughts on that i think that i i think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of loss that happens that is just never caught um and uh, I don't have any, you know, empirical evidence to back that up, but based on my 47 years on this earth, right. And, in working in a lot of different areas and, and talking to a lot of different people and whatnot, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's a, it's definitely a hard problem. Um, but there's two things that kind of ring true to me. One is that you're, you're, employees need to know that you care and you have their back. And I think that more, I think some of the themes that I could pull away from different things I've read over the years is that, you know, employees who don't really feel valued or they're, you know, um, maybe they perceive um, favoritism in the workplace or, you know, no established criteria for promotions and whatnot. To me, I think that the kind of uh, it breeds a a, 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 um, a frustrated employee, probably the best way of putting it. Um, similarly, though, we I, I think this other thing, though, that's out there is that we there's not enough of an example made for the bad stuff. And, and when we look at some of these more ho- high profile cases, you know, I think back to my again, my time in the intelligence community, every major spy that got caught, we, we everyone who got a clearance initially, we watched these videos. It was brought up year in, year out. Like it was always first and, you know, just front, uh, you know, on the front of our brain. And the same thing kind of holds true um, in the corporate space for me. But it's not always just the the malicious person we need to worry about. And I think this is, it's the teaching moment is a lot of what we can do is, is, make up for a lack of digital literacy largely among amongst the globe, right? Because there's a small number of folks like us that are trying to protect many more that all they're trying to do is get through the day 
as efficiently as they can to get home and to do the things that they really want to do. So they don't think about all of the things that kind of go into these, um, you know, the decisions that need to be made. Mm, Totally agree with you on that front as well. And that was sort of what I was thinking as I was asking that question around, like, does everyone get caught? And no, they don't. So would you say then, John, that equal amounts of focus do need to be applied both externally to, you know, security, but then internally, so what we've spoken about today inside of threats, would you say it's equally balanced? Uh, And are enough people looking at their strategy like this or are they very focused on who's sort of going to get me externally? Yeah, I so I think the short answer is I too much focus is put on bad on um on external bad actors. And again, th- those are the stories that get the headlines, right? The the things that get the executives attention is uh you know, right now largely ransomware, right? And shutting down their business and and big payouts and whatnot. The growing consensus is that more focus needs to be internally, and, and that's actually probably more prom. That's a more prevalent thing nowadays for a couple reasons. One is that um, shocker, right? The cybersecurity human capital problem is not going away, so um, there's not enough people trained to do. The work that needs to be done. So, what happens when when any industry encounters that or occupation? They outsource it. So, we have to think a lot. We got to broaden our thoughts about insiders because the insider is not just your employee. It could be your consultants. It could be your your managed service providers. Um, it could be your trusted vent vendors or or what. Especially if they have access to systems and they're actually basically augment in your force. Um, also with that is you got to kind of hedge your bets there. And by that, I mean, is that if you were to do uh, the, the simple things, do the, the easier things. And I, and I use that word very loosely, right? Easy is things like, so when we talk cyber hygiene and I'm just going to use the context of CIS controls, and so these newest controls in version eight, they, they took a little different approach, right? And they've got these three implementation groups. So implementation one are the things that span 18 different categories that they deem to be the low hanging fruit, the things to do, regardless of, you know, how uh, understaffed you are, whatever your budget is work on those and it you become a harder target. And I think that you know the the tagline the elevator speech for any cybersecurity professional anymore should be trying to make it more expensive for the bad guys. Good that's a very good point. So I like your thoughts on that because it's so true especially you speak about human capital, right? And I guess that is a growing concern that we have globally. So then if I get inside the mind of an executive, a CISO, like they have enough things to worry about. They are very stressed a lot of the times because they, they do have a large job. Like they, it's a hard job. They probably don't get a lot of praise. They don't get pats on the back. But as soon as something goes wrong, they're the first person at the door usually. So how do you sort of as an executive like handle the thought that perhaps 
one of your own could potentially turn on you uh, and actually be a malicious threat. And, and I mean, it goes back to they don't have enough people as it is. And then to even think that, oh, well, one of the 100 people I've got potentially could be bad. Like, how, how do you sort of handle those thoughts in terms of psychologically? So I think that this really boils down to culture. Um, and again, I, I no two companies kind of view this the same. And, and I'm not, and again, I think, you know, we, we've already kind of touched on this a couple times, right? Nothing about this is easy, but you can't approach it as a zero defect mentality, you know, in a one strike and you're out. Um, because that's really kind of counterproductive. You, you're probably not going to have very many employees with that type of approach, but it's building trust and and kind of raising the sea of knowledge across the board and 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 we know that cybersecurity is a business enabler right security in general is a business enabler um it's not always a cost center and i think that's something that needs to be um you know reminded especially with enterprises that are um moving moving forward with zero trust because zero trust, if you talk about the people with the strategy and kind of implementing it, what I'm hearing from folks is that they're actually start there's, there's some money to be recouped and there's some cost savings on the backside because it really allows you to, to identify everything that's there. And I think that this goes is even more broadly for anything technology related, you know, to include all your IT stuff is there's a lot of solutions across the company that are probably doing a lot of the same things. So how many different types of PDF readers and, you know, word processing and, and files, file transfer capabilities are there. And then magnifying that across the board, because each one of those there's a configuration management and, you know, vulnerability piece of it. And how is it that we're basically empowering your, your, your company? And, and again, this is, when we talk about culture, I think a lot of it is giving your employees some, some buy-in to products too. And I know some of this could be, you know, novel for some or others be like, well, they don't know. For me, one thing that organizations just, I'm going to venture to say we don't do a good enough job on is, is that most people are hired to do a very specific thing. They applied against a certain job description with fixed, you know, um, experience requirements and, and job tasks. But undoubtedly, you have a lot of smart people across the company that did a lot of different things. And to me, this is why you... Cat- cataloging that, uh, and that's partnering with HR. If if it were me, I'm going to partner with HR. And if, first of all, I want to know like what are all the the strengths and aptitudes um, and interests of my employees because something like cybersecurity, um, what we're seeing a growing trend on is cross training your internal staff. But it serves a dual purpose. One is if you do that evolution, you're also, in my mind, as the skeptic that's out there. If I know some, you know, you have half a dozen employees that are, you know, doing uh, web development on the side or they've got, you know, they do a lot of PC stuff at home. All of a sudden now, I'm not going to look at them necessarily with a, a very you know, with the, with a, a high power mic, uh, microscope, but it's also going to have me kind of 
consider the risk within that business unit a little differently, if that makes sense. Would you still say that there is maybe a percentage of people that are quite worried, though? Like there is people that are, you know, maybe someone has done something wrong before and it brings up like, you know, 10 years ago, someone betrayed me and now I have that that level of trust that is yeah. sort of there. Would you still say that some people do unfortunately think like that irrespective of they shouldn't think like that and they need to build the right culture yeah. and trust and stuff like that? Yeah. And I don't know that we're, you're never going to eliminate bias. Let's just be real. Right. And I think they're just like, you know, security is a state of mind. It, you're, you're never going to get to a hundred percent security. Um, so if somebody's prior experiences and, and ex, you know, largely inform why they act certain ways or, or do certain things. And, and that's both from a, you know, a corporate leadership versus, you know, or employee, both good and bad. I'm not saying that, you know, listen, corporate executives can could equally be at a, a high risk insider just as much as, you know, your lowest paid employee, you know, and I think that's, it, it boils down to access there. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And then sort of my last question for you, while we're talking around the behavior on how people think, would you say in your experience that the anxiety towards thinking about insider threats has probably risen in recent years? Um, I don't think it's risen enough. Truly, uh, I think in certain certain areas it could hold true. And again, coming back to you know, um, we look at some of the high profile cases that you know that had happened just here in the United States. You know, if you work as a defense contractor, you know, supporting the U.S. government, you're scrutinized pretty heavily these days. Um, and so there's obviously anxiety there, but there's also a whole lot of uh, organic employees that are there that are just as much. So, again, every, every industry is going to kind of drive this. Um, I, for me, I think these, you know, when you look at the, um, the information sharing organizations that are out there, I think those are good starting places to kind of get a pulse of what's happening there. But largely speaking, you know, the corporate world is, is just, it's high trust. And, and I would challenge any executive or senior manager, you know, that listens to this podcast, have a conversation with, with, with your tech staff. Look at date at SharePoint, you know, share folders and whatnot. Look at how many have people have access to different things there. Um, because if the anxiety was was high, we would be doing a better job at only giving the permissions to the folks that what they absolutely need. Um, and we know that that's just not happening because identity management is a huge emphasis of uh zt yeah that's so true now we're not saying that we want you to have more anxiety because you're not thinking about this stuff enough that's not what we're saying just saying that right we're just, perhaps if you're not thinking about it think about what john has said today because he's raised some really good points that's also not just focused on for malicious intent sometimes people do things wrong by mistake because we are humans we make mistakes so i think that you have really illuminated 
a lot of thoughts and I think even myths that people probably have because you know a lot of people do like to paint the bad always in the industry and that's not always the case so I really appreciate you taking your time to explain things in in detail now John if people have a question for you that I didn't ask you today how can they go about getting in contact with you Okay, so uh, what I would first uh, encourage them to do is go to the ISACA website at isaka.org. Um, and we have a white paper um, called A Holistic Approach to Mitigating Harm from Insider Threats. Um, if that doesn't really address any of the questions, then they could actually submit a, a support ticket through the um through the isaka.org website and our help desk can get can route people um towards my um to my inbox i similarly i am on linkedin um so feel free to inbox me through that way as well awesome well again thanks for your time john really appreciate it and i can't wait to uh, get you back on the show okay thank you very much thanks for tuning in we hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.